morning. For, uh, for a message this morning, um, we're going to be taking a look at the, uh, the topic of direction. I've been, uh, I've been thinking about that for, for quite a while and uh, wanted to do some study on it. So what I, what I want to do is I want to talk about what the Bible teaches about direction and how we actually in our lives go from, from point A to point B, um, how we end up where we, we get to. And, you know, all of us in here, we know when life is over, we'll, we'll see where the, the direction we've been going has led us. You know, when, uh, when we stand in front of God and give account for the, the choices we've made in life, God will uh, we'll find out what direction we, uh, we've been going and what destination we've ended up at. You know, I know that uh, direction in some ways is more of a general topic, and I, I probably won't get into a lot of uh, practical things like... Um, um, a lot of like particulars, um, but you know, I, I do earnestly think that it's a it's a foundational concept for us as Christians, the the direction we're heading. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the warning signs of the wrong direction, and I'm going to I'm going to try to give us a, a biblical definition of what the right direction is. Now, um, I know. And it probably inspired me a little bit. I, I know we've talked about the, the concept of direction a little bit at brothers' meetings. And um, unless somebody here takes me the wrong way, I just want to make my heart known. I'm, I'm not talking about any, anyone in particular. This isn't directed towards anyone. So if you could just take it that way. And uh, what I hope we can do is we can, we can just look at the scriptures today and be encouraged and profit from them. But uh, before I actually get into it, how about I have you guys stand and... Uh, We'll pray before the message. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we thank you for the freedom to come and meet and worship you in this manner. God, we pray that you uh, uh, come amongst us and bless our time here. Help uh, those who listen uh, to listen with uh, tentative minds and open hearts. God, I pray you guide my words that they might uh, be profitable and encouraging to those who hear. And uh, we pray that you bless the rest of our time here together. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Can be seated. So, uh, so what is direction? I'm going to talk about direction. I, I looked up, and Webster's defines direction. It defines it as it is a guidance or supervision of action or conduct. Now, we we often think of direction in relation to traveling. We think of whether we're going north, south, east, or west, whether we're going towards something or away from it. Now, when you're traveling, what you're doing is uh, you're, you're changing your physical location. You're going from you know, point A to point B. Now, each of us in here today, we came to the fire hall by getting in our cars and moving forward. Now, along the way, there were, there were various points we had to make choices. We had to choose to turn left or right or stay straight on. It was at those various points that uh, we either uh, headed towards our destination or we headed away from it. Now, if we missed a a wrong way, we either ended up, uh, some of you may have made a wrong turn today and ended up late to church. Um, Or sometimes when you make a wrong turn, you never end up at church. Uh, those points where we choose to turn or not to turn, what, 
is what decides what our direction is when we're sitting in a car. Now, the same principle is true in our lives. Our direction is determined by the choices we make. But unlike our unlike a car, our lives are always in motion. You know, time stops for no man. We are always moving from birth to death. We are always moving forward. You know, even if we're not making a choice, we're, we're still moving forward. And the choices or lack of choices are what determine our direction. And our direction determines where we end up in life. Also, our, our direction will not only uh, determine our direction, but it will also greatly influence the direction of our children and grandchildren. And there's uh, there's an example that I'm sure many of you have uh, you've heard before, but it, it relates uh, really well here. Uh, during the Puritan era in New England, there was a preacher by the name of Jonathan Edwards, and he had 11 children. So what uh, what they did, this uh, this man went and did a study. He went and tracked down all the descendants of uh, Jonathan Edwards, this Puritan preacher. And uh, their descendants included uh, one U.S. vice president, three U.S. senators, three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 college professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, and 100 missionaries. Now, during, uh, during Edward's time period, there was also an outspoken atheist named Max Jukes, whose uh, descendants were also tracked down, and they included seven murderers, 60 thieves, 50 women of debauchery, 130 other convicts, 310 paupers, and 400 who were physically wrecked by indulgent living. You know, any, any good parent, and I trust all of us here, want and earnestly desire that our children turn out well. That our children become Christians and develop a sincere, deep walk with God. Now, our children will, will obviously have to come to a place where they have to make a decision for themselves. But we need to do everything we can to set them up to succeed. Choosing to follow God rather than the world, even in small matters, can have lasting impacts on generations that we never see. Psalms 103.17 says, But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children. And Luke 1.50 says, And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. So our choices affect uh, all the souls that follow beyond us. Now I want to... Uh, I want to talk about how choices affect us personally a little bit. And as I said before, we, we, uh, when we make choices that affect our direction, but I'm, I'm going to go to the extent of saying that, that only choices determine our direction. Now, I know that uh, some, someone might try to say that, you know, someone pushed me into uh, making a decision or a person in authority told me to do this or, you know, someone maybe hurt me or abused me. But the, the fact is, no matter how mistreated and how misled we are, at the end of the day, we are still accountable before God for the choices we make, no matter how hard they are. Our choices are always our choices. You know, even facing torture and death, many Christians still make God-honoring choices. Just for an example, we can think of Stephen, who prayed for the men while they stoned him. When it comes down to it, we are responsible for all of our choices in life, even if some of those choices are hard even when we're pushed to make the wrong choice. You know, no earthly situation can be used as an excuse for not living a righteous life. 
And whether right or wrong, we always have to live with either the blessings or the scars of the choices that we make. There's a scripture I want to look at that talks about that a bit. Turn with me here to Galatians 6. Galatians 6, I'm going to start in verse 7. It says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now, if we if we make a wrong choice, we we have an advocate with the father. We can repent, can turn around and go back. But, you know, even in repentance, there's still reaping that must happen. There's a principle in scripture of sowing and reaping. There's still earthly consequences for uh, the choice and decisions we make. You know, just because God has forgiven you of um, you know, uh, an alcoholic life, that doesn't mean you get out of the physical side effects of having been an alcoholic. Um, there's, a, there's a story we, re- we had been reading as a family here recently of a, of a young Amish couple that they, they wanted to get married, but, married, but they, they thought they wouldn't be given permission to get married because they, they had no money, they had no place to live, they had no income. So what they did was they, they snuck off and went to town and got a judge to marry him. And, you know, almost immediately after they did that, they they realized the, the error of their ways. They went back to the church. They confessed everything. Um, but the fact is what was done was done. So they were married. So early in life, they, uh, they had a struggle to get by um, financially. And they had to live with the shame every time someone unknowingly asked them, you know, what was your wedding like? You know, just sort of an innocent question. And then you sort of had to tell them, well, you know, we snuck off to a, to a judge. Um, and in the story that we read, they, they were even used as a scapegoat for going around the church by some of their siblings. Um, so they had, to, they had to live with that burden, even though they confessed it and walked away from it. They still had to live with the fact that they, uh, they got married out of their... At an inappropriate time. Now, I would assume that all of us here can readily see how choices determine our direction. But, you know, it's just not those big choices that determine our direction. Small choices, even ones we don't think about, help to determine our direction as well. Big choices like who you marry, where you live, what church you attend, what friends you spend time with. You know, admittedly, those do have greater impact. And, you know, you, you, you can see an almost immediate um, result of many of those choices. But the small choices guide our direction as well. Now, I'm, uh, I suppose some of you have heard the, uh, the analogy of the boiling frog. Um, you get used, it gets used pretty common. Um, frogs are cold-blooded, and their bodies adjust to the, the temperature that they're in, the room temperature that they're in. So if you take a frog and uh, put it at some boiling water, it's going to try to walk away. It's going to try to jump away um, because it knows that there's danger there. It's so much different than its own body's temperature. But if you take a frog and you put it in a lukewarm pot of water and slowly turn up that heat, the frog's body's going to adjust 
slowly as you turn up that heat all the way up to the point where it gets boiled and it dies. You know, the frog never knows what happened. It just knows that it ended up dying. <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's how drift in, in our lives and in the church happen. You know, lots of, lots of small little choices, lots of small little wrong choices over time. Lots of little compromises going undetected till we're dead. You know, it's these small choices in life that often get overlooked. It's the small choices that we make exceptions for. And it's always those small choices that cause drift in a church. You know, we've heard the expression here uh, here recently. I know a number of brothers have made it, you know, uh, talking about we need to be careful with the set of our sail. And, you know, I, I would understand that saying that as a, a reference to us taking care with the small choices in our lives and because of where they, they may lead us. You know, when people used to use uh, sailing ships to come to Americas, sailors could point the ship west and just go. But how they had their sails set determined whether they ended up in Virginia or New England. You know, even after they have their sails set right and they set off, they set off in the right direction and everything, they still have to constantly monitor and constantly make little adjustments as they're going. Otherwise, they could still end up hundreds of miles off course. You know, in navigation, the, the earlier a mistake is made, the greater impact it has. Um, being one degree off after you've uh, traveled one mile, you'd end up 92 feet off course. If you traveled from San Francisco to Lancaster being one degree off, you would be 42 miles off. If you travel around the world, you'd end up being 432 miles off. If... Uh, if NASA was to launch a rocket to the moon that was just one degree off, it would miss the moon by 4,169 miles. In navigation, early decisions have greater impact and are harder to correct than later ones if they are not dealt with right away. You know, the same thing is true in our lives, that the direction we start going early on comes out more and more clear as time goes on. So there's a great importance for us to take careful consideration when we're making choices in our day and age. And we need to be diligent with considering our small choices. You know, I know that none of us in here would ever want to slowly drift away from God. But, you know, the fact is, the people that do drift away from God slowly, they never intended to either. Now, what I'd like to do now is I'd like to take some look at the, the warning signs of the wrong direction. Now, I know I haven't defined the right direction yet, but I, I will do that here shortly. I said before that, you know, being that one degree off is still the wrong direction. Uh, a little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. Scripture says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Many places the Bible tells us we are held to the same sinless perfection as Christ. Be holy for I am holy. We are held to a very high standard as Christians. The Bible even makes mention at one point that we will be held account for every idle word. You know, the, the Christian life in all reality, it is rigid and it rubs against our flesh and nature. So it's important that we be vigilant and uh, be careful not to stray from the path.
And also, as I said before, very few people who ever wander from God ever intended to. You know, with everything pulling us in this world away from God, it'll simply happen if you're not careful. You know, down uh, down in Delaware, uh, around where I grew up, there's a road that goes about uh, 20, 30 miles as, as straight as can be. And uh, for any of you that have been down to Delaware, Delaware is very, very flat. So it's a very long, very flat road. And if you get on this road and start going, you know, no matter how, how aligned your tires are on your vehicle, you're eventually going to have to move your steering wheel a little bit to keep yourself in that lane. Um, never seen a vehicle that has the, the wheels aligned perfectly. And, you know, it's a little bit like our lives. Our lives are never aligned perfectly. None of us in here are perfect. We're held to a high standard, and we're going to have to make adjustments as we go on in life. If we choose not to make adjustments while we're going on in life, if we choose not to make adjustments when we're going on that straight path, we're going to either hit the rumble strip or we're going to bump another car and sort of be jarred back into the lane. Um, worst case scenario, you end up wrecked. So that's what that's what happens when you're driving, even on a, a straight, flat road. And that's what happens in our lives. If we're unwilling to make those little adjustments as we go in life, we're going to end up having to make big adjustments or we're going to end up being wrecked. So what I want to do is to, uh, to avoid ending up getting wrecked, I want to take a look at some, uh, so, some of the warning signs of the wrong direction. Um, so if you could turn with me to Matthew 7, there's a couple of verses there I want to look at. It's Matthew 7, I'm going to start in verse 17. says, Beware false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. So whether I'm going to stop there. So whether we are moving in the right direction or the wrong direction, the fruits our life is producing is the most blatant and surefire way to tell what direction we are going. You know, this passage here even tells us that a wolf in sheep's clothing and that's um, that's a false Christian or a false teacher will eventually be exposed by the fruits in their lives. And, you know, we, we all know church-going people that sort of put on a front, that, you know, dress the right way and fulfill the expectations the church has on them. But yet, if you get close to them and see what their, their life is producing, you can see right through the facade of hypocrisy. I am confident of that. I'm confident you can tell what, uh, what type of tree it is by the fruit. You know, we're not supposed to judge each other. We're not. You know, but we are supposed to look at the fruits that are coming out of each other's lives. You know, we can ask each other questions like, you know, do we have stability? How are your relationships with your families, with your co-workers, with your church brothers? Do our lives show the signs of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, thinking about the fruits of the Spirit, something that that stood out to me recently as I was uh, looking at that passage about the fruits of the Spirit is that uh, earlier in that chapter, there's actually a list of the, uh, the works of the flesh, and if we're producing any of those. So if you could turn uh, back to Galatians, Galatians 5. Just like the fruits of the Spirit are the most surefire way to tell if you're going in the right direction, the, this list of uh, the works of the flesh is the most surefire way to tell if you're going in the wrong direction. That's Galatians 5. I'm going to start in verse uh, 19. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentiousness, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revileries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So those are the the most general and the most blatant ways we can... Um, look at our lives and tell whether or not we are going the right or wrong direction by the fruits we produce. But now I, I want to take some time and I want to try to look at some more uh, specific patterns that uh, come out in some people's lives that uh, are heading the, the wrong direction. The, the first one I want to talk about here is uh, a person who is always giving excuses for the choices they make. You know, the, the path in the wrong direction is littered with excuses and exceptions. If you find yourself needingly, needing to constantly justify your decisions to others, the odds are you aren't making the right decisions. Right decisions don't need justification because they are just all by themselves. The person making excuses oftentimes has a defensive spirit and they can never admit when they're wrong or made a mistake. And because of that, we'll never be able to make those little adjustments needed to head in the right direction. They're the the type of people that end up with a wrecked life. Another warning sign of the wrong direction is when a person is making changes and making them quickly. And you know, now it is right for a sinner to make changes quickly. I mean, certainly an alcoholic shouldn't, you know, um, slowly come off of alcohol. They should cut it off. But um, I'm talking more about uh, Christians making changes in their lives. I don't think a Christian should make quick changes in their lives. When a Christian is making a lot of quick changes, what they're often doing is they're overreacting to something. You know, perhaps it could be called a blind spot. And, you know, I I do have my own from my background. But I've I've seen some of those raised in the, uh, the more traditional plane settings do that. I've seen some of them come out of the muck and mire of traditionalism. You know, earnestly seeking spiritual life and a, and a deep walk with God, only to end up throwing throwing the baby out with the bathwater because they overreacted. You know, I, I understand it becomes difficult to discern between the difference um, from from that background because oftentimes you have the um, the cultural traditions of man mixed with the biblical truths. 
so much so that you can't you, you can't really tell the difference between the two. Um, I remember having a conversation very uh, actually I had two conversations. Both of these were very early on with different people um, early on when I was um, coming into the plane circles, both of them from uh, old order people. Um, I talked to a man who was still with the uh, the old order church. Um, nobody here knows him. And uh, I, I was talking to him about his hat. He had a black hat on. So I talked to him about that. Um, and he he earnestly claimed that the Bible taught somewhere that men are supposed to wear the wear this symbol on their head or something. Um, he earnestly claimed that. Um, obviously, the Bible says men should not have a symbol on their head. Um, but be, because his church practiced it and his church's practices were were a thus saith the Lord type situation, he he was confused about the two. Um, but on the the other side of that fence, I was talking to another another man who was from old order background, but but left that. Um, and he claimed up and down that the positions of elder and deacon were completely man made, completely made up. And you know, it doesn't matter what type of structure you have at church; it doesn't matter what kind of uh, style you have. You can do whatever you want um, because all that stuff's just man made. Um, even the roles of elder and deacon. Um, which obviously is wrong because there's uh, guidelines given in the scriptures for those roles. Um, you know, but because uh, because it's such a confusing thing and uh, it's very difficult to sort out, what, what often happens, or at least what I've observed in my time, is I've seen people from the plain, uh, plain community... Uh, after they, they come out of those settings, they want to cast off the shackles of legalism. Um, what they do is they end up overreacting. And, you know, even in, I've only been in the plain circles like 10 years. Um, even in my time, I've seen people do that. I've seen people go from point A to point B on that issue. Um, and, you know, when we talk in terms of liberal and uh, conservative, uh, a pendulum is often used as the analogy. And what a pendulum does, it swings from one side to the other. It doesn't stop at the place of balance. It never does that. It just blows right by it. And we, I'm sure some of you have seen people that do that too. You know, They don't stop where they need to stop. They just blow right by it and keep going. You know, we, we do need to make take our time when we're making changes, especially to our perspective of what the Bible teaches and what God uh, wants out of our lives. You know, when we are considering changing our understanding of practical truth, we, we should take much time to pray about it and seek counsel from brothers. You know, we, we should never let it be rust. We need to have patience with change. Another sign of the wrong direction is the, the absence of growth. If we get to a place where our walk with God plateaus, it will eventually become stagnant and begin to decline. God wants us to increase. He wants us to to walk closer with him. You know, our God is a God of growth and gain. In the parable of the talents, the servant that buried his talents gained nothing. He didn't lose what he was given, but yet he was still called lazy and wicked. He was chewed out because he had no profit to show. The Lord did not get gain on his investment. You know, I think uh, 
I think a question we could ask ourselves um, that would be very revealing as far as if we're going in the right direction or the wrong direction would be what uh, what gain can we show God for God's investment in us? I think if we honestly answer that question, it would be very revealing. Another sign of the wrong direction, one that's uh, pretty particular in our day and age, is trend following. You know, the, the church isn't meant to stay two steps behind the world. But on the other hand, we're not supposed to abandon all advancement. You know, do we always have to have the latest and greatest? Do we need a little bit nicer vehicle or house? Do we always have to keep up with the latest technology that comes out? You know, do we have to have the best? You know, I think it's interesting that uh, in our personal life, um, pride, especially in these areas, has to be stamped out. But something I've, I've observed, that it seems that sometimes we make exception for these things in the business world. You know, sometimes we put more trust in the latest and greatest than in earnest, good Christian character and the blessings of God. You know... Trend following is something that we should obviously try to avoid. And, you know, if the world is pushing and promoting it, you know, we need to take great care and evaluate why they're pushing and promoting it. And we need to evaluate the long-term impacts it'll have on us personally and our families. So the last sign of the wrong direction I want to I look at here this morning is uh, that of guilt or a guilty conscience. You know, if we're carrying around a guilty conscience with us, we know we're not right with God and we aren't heading the right way. It's not a question. You know. Our conscience is tuned by God and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It should be a welcome guide. You know, although it may not seem that way while we're under conviction. And admittedly, there are people who, who do develop oversensitive consciences. You know, I still remember hearing a story of a young man who was given a pocket knife for his birthday. And uh, somebody asked him if his dad gave it to him. He said yes. So later later on, he fell, he fell under conviction because his, his mother handed it to him. Um, so he actually fell under conviction, had to go back to the person and straighten it out. Um, the person he went back to obviously didn't care. Um, it wasn't a big deal. Um, but there are people who develop oversensitive consciences. So there, there is a guilt we can put on upon ourselves needlessly sometimes. Um, and another form of guilt is shame. You know, some of us may feel ashamed of something we're doing, but not necessarily think it's immoral. But if we find ourselves in a place we do not feel open and free to share with a church brother or with our family, or if we feel we need to, to hide something from the church or our family, you know, the odds are we're ashamed of it for a good reason. You know, if we're carrying around secret shame for something we've done wrong, what we're doing is we're carrying around a burden that drags us in the wrong direction. Now, as I said before, there is uh, there's no excuse for the choices that we make. There's no excuse for going in the wrong direction. You know, regardless of any situation, we are accountable for all of our choices. But I, I do want to look at one thing this morning that uh, that perhaps is not always a choice. Um, and that is deception. 
No, I'm just I'm just curious here. Uh, by, by show of hands, is anybody in here deceived about anything? Oh, a number of you. Okay. All right. Well, guess what? You're not deceived because you know what it is. You see, the thing with deception is that you don't know you're deceived. Um, yeah, I was wondering if there would be a, a few brothers that would raise their hands jokingly. Um, so if you're deceived, you don't know it. That's the, that's the whole point of deception. But, you know, the, the fact is, in reality, some of, us, some of us could be deceived. You don't know when you're deceived, so somebody in here could be. I, I do think it's interesting that deception in the New Testament is, is a, it's a very big uh, warning point in the New Testament. The, the reason for that is that uh, deception is the main method Satan uses to lead Christians astray. He often does it through false teachers and um, heresies. What he does is he takes truths and twists them. I've, I've heard the saying already that the, the closer to the truth a lie is, the more convincing the lie. You know, we can think of uh, different places in the scriptures. We can think of Christ in the wilderness. When Satan came to tempt him, he quoted scripture. You know, of course, Jesus saw through that and was not deceived. But even from the beginning, Satan was a deceiver. He deceived Eve, twisted and raised doubt on God's instructions and what the punishments would be if she ate of the tree. Now, the fact is, many non-Christians are gladly deceived by Satan. You know, they, they find comfort and justification in it. You know, even some so-called Christians today find, find peace and deception. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but will, wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. You know, I, I honestly think that's what's happening in the mainstream church today. And, you know, um, I know there's going to be varying opinions on this, this comment, but I, I do think that's why we need to be very careful about uh, reading books that they put out and um, messages that they produce and uh, following, uh, following ministers out in the mainstream church. We need to be careful about that because there are false teachers out there. There are preachers that want to lead us astray. And, you know, I, I come, uh, my background's from the evangelical setting, and I, I sort of understand that temptation that Christians are under to, um, you know, let yourself be deceived, to think that you can enjoy the pleasures of the world while still getting the blessing of God. But that, that is simply not true. There's a scripture I want to look at here in 2 Peter, if you turn there with me. That's 2 Peter 2. I'm going to start in verse 1. There were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who brought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, 
because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed by covetousness. They will exploit you with their deceptive words. I want to jump down to verse 18. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the one who has, who have actually escaped from those who live in error, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also is he brought into bondage. I think I'll stop there. Now again, because no one ever knows that they are deceived, it's hard to come out of deception. You know, we can safeguard ourselves from falling into deception. By staying in the word, by having an active prayer life, by being sensitive to the conviction and leading of the Holy Spirit, you know, by acting like Bereans and not accepting what is presented until you filter it through the scriptures. But, you know, as far as getting out of it once you're in, you know, unless God reveals it to you, you can only be pulled out of deception by another Christian. By having them show you a blind spot in your life. I know being shown a blind spot sometimes hurts, but in reality, we should be grateful for it. And you know, that's, that's why it's so important that we keep an open mind and an open heart when a brother tries to speak into our lives. You know, I'm not, I'm not up here saying that we need to bow down to every concern that we're presented. Because honestly, not, not everything someone claims you have wrong is wrong. It's not always the case. You know, we don't need to be gullible. But we do need to make sure we're not defensive and we honestly consider the possibility of what's being said by another brother could be true. If you can't have an open mind and attitude about a brother speaking to your life like that, hey, you're going you're gonna to be a prime target for deception. Now, moving on, I wanted to uh, I want to take a look at the right direction this morning. And what I want to do is I want to contrast some of the uh, some of those signs of the wrong direction with what the right direction looks like. And, you know, in reality, the right direction is more important than knowing what the wrong direction is. And perhaps some of it in our uh, perhaps in some uh, some of our conservative churches, the focus is often lopsided to warning about the wrong direction instead of uh, talking about the right direction. And I, I do understand the principles, the principle that if you don't know what you're aiming at, you'll miss it every time. You know, having having that said, I I really don't get into all those, you know, all the vision statements and mission statements and purpose statements, you know, that are really popular with the mainstream church. You know, I, I think most of that's just a modern trend. I I think the church the, the church has been going for over for two thousand years. I don't think the purpose, mission, or vision of the church has changed. I think it's the same today as it was back then. So I said I was going to define the right direction here. So that's what I'm going to do. Here it is. This is what I believe the scriptures define the right direction as for our lives. And this is what I believe the, the scriptures define the right direction since the, the beginning of the church. This is what I think the church has been doing for the past 2,000 years. This is what I think we as individuals, as families, and as a church should be doing. The right direction, I'm going to define today as we're supposed to become like Christ while helping others to become like Christ. That's it. 
That's, that's what Christians are here to do. Become like Christ while helping others to become like Christ. You know, if everything you do truly meets those parameters, then you are heading in the right direction. If you are truly heading in the direction where you're becoming like Christ while helping others to become like Christ, then you're going to see those fruits of the Spirit. You're going to see those coming out in abundance. Now, with becoming like Christ and helping others to become like Christ, you can't do one without the other. It has to be both or neither. Because the fact is, it's not Christ-like to avoid or lack helping others to become like Christ. And on the other side, if you only focus on helping others and forsake your own growth and walk with God, you'll end up becoming that false teacher. You'll end up doing more damage than good when you're discipling. Now, I, I know people have been at places in life, and, and you know I've been there too, you sort of feel that you're, you're going through a hard time or a low point and you feel like, you know, you can't minister to others. The feeling of, uh, I, I need to get my act together first. Um, and, you know, there's, there, there is a place for that. But it becomes a real problem when that time gets stretched out. And we, we end up turning that into an excuse or a habit. The, the fact is, though, that none of us in here, not me, not you, not any of us, are ever going to really have our act together 100%. None of us in here, I don't think, are ever going to are gonna never sin again. And we definitely aren't going to have our act together if we aren't ministering to others. Ministering to others is part of having our act together. None of us in here are perfect, and we can't let a, a feeling of self-condemnation loom over us and hinder us. For ministering to those around us. If you have guilt in your life, you need to get it taken care of. You need to straighten it out and move on. There's a passage here in 1 John I want to take a look at. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. First John 3, I want to start there at verse 19. It says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whatever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. I'll stop there. As I said before, what I want to do is I want to contrast the those signs of the wrong direction with what the, the right direction looks like. The, the first one that I talked about there was excuses. When we are heading in the right direction, what we'll do is we'll maintain an attitude of humility where we can readily admit our wrongs and failures. The person heading in the right direction takes responsibility for their actions and they will be quick to repent and quick to ask for forgiveness. They will maintain a testimony of consistency and honesty. The right direction is marked with sobriety and maintains a reserve from questionable situations and decisions. The person heading the right way makes very few, if any, compromises and they avoid ever having the need to make an excuse. The next sign I looked at there was a person who is overreacting 
or making hasty life changes. The right direction is not a direction that is filled with turmoil and uncertainty. The right direction is full of peace and clear vision. If we are heading in the right way, we'll take our time to make life decisions. We'll take time to pray and wait for God's leading. We'll look to the scriptures for truths and principles before making big decisions. We'll seek the counsel of brothers in, in the faith and give consideration to opinions that are different than our own. The right direction is marked by putting yourself under leadership, by putting roots down in a church and not wandering about. Another sign was the absence of growth or a stagnant spiritual life. I think I mentioned before that uh, our God is a God of growth and gain. A person heading in the right direction will still have mountaintops and valleys. But as time goes on, those valleys shouldn't go as deep and those mountaintops should keep getting higher. The Bible in different places uses the analogy of a Christian going from milk to solid food. First Peter 2.2 says, Like newborn infants long for the pure milk, that by it you may grow up in salvation. There is, uh, there's different ways to grow in the faith. We can grow in our knowledge of truth by studying the scriptures or by letting iron sharpening iron and having some deep discussions with brothers. We can grow in prayer by being self-disciplined and devoting our, ourselves to prayer and setting time aside to pray. The person heading in the right direction will consistently be increasing the fruits of the Spirit in their life. The person heading the right way welcomes the pruning and challenging challenges God puts before them because they know that on the other side they will be a better person person heading the right way knows they can sharpen their convictions and develop stronger ones and weed out false ones. They can increase their ability of discernment. Hebrews 5, 13 to 14 says, For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The right direction is not marked by stagnation. It's marked by a fiery and serious faith. The scriptures say we are to run the race as to win. We all know that we're, we're never going to truly hit the mark, the side of the grave. We're never going to truly be holy like Christ is holy. You know, but that's still the end we're called to. And we can always get closer. But we must continue to strive towards that without ceasing. If you guys could turn with me to Philippians 3, there's a passage there I'd like to look at. It's Philippians 3, I'm going to start in verse 12. It says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. But I press on to make my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm going to stop there.
The next sign I had mentioned was that of trend following or needing the latest and greatest. The right direction is marked by recognition that all we have is God's. It's marked with a spirit that gives freely to the needs around them. So much so, it should be hard to even have the latest and greatest. The person heading the right way should rarely even know what the trends of the world are. Their heart will only be longing after things of eternal value. Nothing other than God can hold their heart. No obsession over a hobby or sport or entertainment has a hold on them. The person heading in the right direction is not easily influenced by the world. The world does not have an appeal to them. They have become dead to sin. You know, I've always found that uh, that analogy of being dead to sin kind of interesting. Because if you're dead to sin, what that means is that you cannot be tempted by sin. I've always sort of pictured it kind of like if you take a if you take a stake and put it in front of a dog. You know, that that dog's going to go wild and it'll be sitting there uh, jittering, just wanting to jump. And every fiber of its being is all about eating that steak. You know, but if you put a steak in front of a dead dog, there's no reaction. It doesn't want it. Can't eat it. Doesn't even know it's there, and it couldn't care less. And that's how I think we need to be about trends of the world. You know, I, I think a good attitude towards trends of the world is I couldn't care less. The last sign of the wrong direction I had mentioned was a guilty conscience. Obviously, the person... Uh, with a guilty conscience, is heading in the, the wrong direction. And obviously the person heading in the right direction doesn't have guilt. What they've done is they've taken their guilt, they've repented, they laid their sin at the cross and moved on. And, you know, that's not to say we still don't carry scars with us. But the person heading the right way, they have a free and open conscience. They can live transparently because they have nothing to hide. There was, uh, there was one time I had to do some computer work on a co-worker's computer, and uh, he had his email program open, so I could, I could blatantly see his emails there. Um, and I was trying to close it out, and I was having trouble. But uh, he saw that and told me, oh, don't worry about it, just let it open, I have nothing to hide. And I, I thought that was a, a good picture of an open conscience, you know, you have, you have nothing to hide. The right direction isn't one of darkness and deceit, but it's one of light and exposure. You know, if you, like I said before, if you have something to hide, it's probably because you feel guilty about it and probably have a good reason that you want to hide it. The right direction is full of confession. Proverbs 18.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You know, as I said before, said before, heading in the right direction, even at the best times, you still need to make those little adjustments as you're going on. Nobody's perfect. Without confession, we don't take that step to realign, and we end up needing to make bigger adjustments later on. It's sort of interesting how sometimes we are slow to confess uh, sin to God. But even when we, when we do, we aren't telling God anything he didn't know. I mean, he, he already knew that we, we committed so-and-so, and he, he watched us do it, but, we, but sometimes we still drag our feet, uh, humbling ourselves to him. 
Now, I, I have heard that some people after confession and repentance that they, they still do not have that, that feeling of forgiveness. They don't feel, uh, they still feel like they're, they're under uh, guilt. And, you know, that's, that's not something I've never struggled with, so I, I speak here probably from a little bit of a limited understanding. But I, I wonder if that's not just a lack of faith that God has forgiven you. A lack in the understanding of the grace of God, perhaps. First John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to uh, bring in, bring the parameters of the right direction together here a little bit. The right direction, like as I define it, is becoming like Christ while helping others to become like Christ. You know, that's you can sort of picture that as the guardrail along the right direction. You know, as long as you truly are staying inside of those guardrails, you're heading the right way. The right direction will blatantly show the fruits of the spirit and it will show the signs of humility, consistency, slow and deliberate choices, spiritual growths and gain, a disregard for trends, transparency confession, and a fiery, serious faith. And, you know, I, I know that there's probably many more signs of either the wrong direction or the right direction we could talk about. But those are the ones I wanted to look at today. And I just want to point out again, the direction really comes back to the choices we make in life and whether or not we are willing to make those changes in our lives for Christ's sake, those little adjustments or whether we're going to let little compromises today make us miss our destination tomorrow. There's one more passage of scripture I want to look at here today before I close. And that's in Haggai 1. So if you turn to Haggai 1 with me. If you have trouble finding it, it's the third to the last book in the Old Testament. I think most of us are there. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'm going to read down to, I think, maybe verse 11. It says, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month of the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shelti, governor of Judea, and to Joshua, the son of Jezadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says... That would be the children of Israel are saying this. The time has not yet come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. I'm just going to make a comment there real quick. This is shortly after they came back from uh, captivity, uh, the temples in ruins. Um, and the people 
of Israel are saying, the time has not yet come, the time that the house of the Lord should be built. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And you earn wages. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and stone and build the temple that I might take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Stop there. We can see here that the children of Israel thought it was more important to take care of themselves rather than the temple of God. What they were doing is they were functioning with an earthly perspective instead of a heavenly perspective. And what they did was they made a sound, what sounded to them a legitimate excuse not to do it. They, they made an excuse that made it sound like it was wrong to re, rebuild the temple at the time. You know, they never said they wouldn't rebuild the temple, but just not yet. What they did before they made the excuse was they made a choice. They chose to value the earthly more than the spiritual. They chose to look after their own uh, needs instead of serving God. You know, like I said here, they were they were just back from from captivity for their sin. And here again, they're looking to themselves instead of to God. They were blind to where their choices were going to lead them yet again. You know, maybe they had good intentions to rebuild the temple someday. But intentions wasn't what God wanted. What God God wanted here was God wanted action. He wanted stone and wood. He wanted devotion and sacrifice. You know, the same is true with many people today. They have good intentions to get right with God, but it's always later. You know, we'll get we'll get victory over some sin later. I'll reach out to so-and-so later. I'll get involved in a ministry later. You know, the fact is, later soon turns into never. Twice in that chapter there, God tells the children of Israel, consider your ways. And, you know, we need to do that ourselves here and today. We need to be careful to consider what we're doing and why we're doing it. Are we sure we know what the consequences of our decisions are going to be? Are we looking down the road? Are we living for ourselves or for God? 
Is our heart turned toward the physical or the spiritual? Are we living in those parameters, becoming like Christ while helping others to become like Christ? Do you have a clear picture of where you want yourself and your family to end up in 30, 40 years from now? Are you considering your ways and what the impact of big and little choices you make in life? You know, if you aren't, you should be. We all should be doing that. Blessings to you.